Tonight we begin a series of three Bible lectures to be delivered by our brother James Goering of Henderson, Kentucky. The subject of his address tonight is War with Russia Inevitable. And in connection with his remarks, we invite your attention to the reading of Joel, the third chapter, Joel 3. For behold, in those days and in that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, and will plead with them there for my and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. And they have cast lots for my people and have given a boy for an harlot and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. Yea. And what have ye to do with me, O Tyre and Zidon, and all the coasts of Palestine? Will ye render me a recompense? And if ye recompense me swiftly and speedily, will I return your recompense upon your own head? Because ye have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried into your temples my goodly, pleasant things, the children also of Judah and the children of Jerusalem have ye sold unto the Grecians, that ye might remove them far from your, their border. Behold, I will raise them out of the place whether ye have sold them, and will return your recompense upon your own head. And I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the children of Judah, and they shall sell them to the Sabaeans, to a people far off, for the Lord has spoken it. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for thou will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come get you down, for the press is full the fats overflow, for thy wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion, and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her any more. And in that day, and it shall come to pass in that day, that the mountains shall drop down new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters, and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord, and shall water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall dwell forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed, for the Lord dwelleth in Zion. We now take pleasure in listening to our brother James Gearing on the subject is war with Russia inevitable. Good evening, friends. 
brethren and sisters. The times in which we live are very interesting. They might be called striking. To some people, they're even alarming and fearful. And many people are beginning to ask, what do they mean? Is there a reason and a purpose behind what is happening? Is it connected with something that is vital? Uh, will history go on? Will some mankind somehow muddle through? Or have we reached a time in the world's history when a greater crisis is at hand than man can cope with? Those are good questions. We feel we have some answers from the scriptures. And tonight, with the aid of this chart, we're going to attempt to answer some of those questions. And first, we might introduce you to the structure of this chart we see hanging here. Its uh, size is 28 feet long by 5 feet wide. It was uh, painted to a scale of 45 inches to each 1,000 years of the 7,000-year period. The events on it are placed in chronological order. That is, we begin over here at the Garden of Eden. This, by the way, is a replica of a very famous painting. We see Adam and Eve coming forth from the garden in accordance with God's command. They are being driven forth, as we remember, having sinned, having transgressed the law of God, and are now no longer permitted to live in a state of blessedness. They have fallen from his favor or grace. And he has said, lest they put forth their hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, they've been driven forth to till the ground from whence they were taken. And there is the plowed ground to which they are coming forth. And these gravestones we see here, continuing on down the stream of time, are testimony to the very serious side of their curse. Thus they were, and the edict was, unto dust shall they return. And so they come forth. We have a river here which is intended simply to be the river of life. The events on the upper side of it represent the spiritual things that happen in the scripture, and those on the lower shore here near us represent the secular or affairs in the, things in the affairs of the nations. The boats here simply represent outstanding Bible characters. Some of them are faithful and some unfaithful. Now, here we see represented the ark and the rainbow, which spoke of a covenant God made with man at that time. Here we see the Tower of Babel. Here we'll notice three arcs, one coming from Eden, one from a God's promise to Abraham, and one connected with God's promise to David, all ending in a star over on the side of that mountain. Now tomorrow evening we're going to have considerable say about those arcs and their meaning and their connection with God's plan. We will not go into those this evening. Here we see a group of people gathered on the shore, ready to cross the Red Sea. They're God's people, the nation of Israel. 
Here we see them intent, uh, intended at the base of Mount Sinai and Moses receiving the laws of God as they were given to him in the tables of stone. We look on this side of the river and we see depicted certain animals. They are symbolical animals spoken of in the book of Daniel and have to do with the outworking of God's plan. Here we see the central figure coming in about the center of the chart is a representation of a vision or dream seen by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, which Daniel told him represented the four great world empires, which, beginning with him, would come right on down to what Daniel called the time of the end, or latter days, at which time a stone being cut out of a mountain would be hurled against the feet of this uh, image and would destroy it, would scatter it the dust thereof to the four winds of heaven, and that stone would become a great mountain and eventually fill the whole earth. Over here we see John the Baptist doing his work to which he was called, and in the boat we see a representation of the twelve apostles. We remember most of them were fishermen, and the boat would be a far proper place to represent them. The same group is represented on the mount near the star. That's the Mount of Olives, and they are witnessing a very remarkable incident, the ascension of their Lord and Master to heaven, at which time he gave them a promise that they would see him coming again in like manner as they saw him go. Here we have a representation of John, the apostle, on the Isle of Patmos, receiving the revelation. He is pointing to seven, the seven Asiatic ecclesias. Uh, which were the subjects of the first two books or chapters of the Revelation. Down here we see represented various uh, animals and likenesses which in symbolism in the book of Revelation tell us more of Daniel's prophecy, enlarge on it. We will not have time to go into these matters this evening. They are the subjects of another quite lengthy uh, discussion. Now here we'll notice another arc. It extends over quite a period of time, nearly 2,000 years. We have the words here in that period that God is taking out from among the Gentiles a people for his name, and it's in connection with a promise, the promise of Christ's return, which is, as you'll notice, referred to in several places in the Scripture, and those are not the only ones. Here we have, in connection with the year 1456, which is, of course, long after the Bible was written, the Bible represented, it is to represent the art of printing, where the Bible became uh, more uh, commonly used because it was available to the mass of mankind. And you and I probably are enabled to have one in our homes because of the development of the art of printing which this recalls our memory. Now we come here, you'll notice the water is greatly disturbed at the point to which we've come now, and this is representative of times of which our Master himself speaks. Daniel the prophet also speaks, as well as Isaiah. It is a time of great trouble and distress. 
This is the period in which we find ourselves this evening, in a time of trouble. It is also a time when men's minds and techniques and scientific ability have produced some very remarkable achievements. They are represented by the steamship, the airplane, and we'll notice that since this, arc, this chart was painted in the 1940s, we have now added an orbit, uh, a satellite in orbit. That, of course, is the most recent development. That brings us to where we are tonight, the year 1963. It's as, it is, we feel, just before the fulfillment of the Lord's promise given to these apostles here in Acts. I will so come in like manner, he shall so come in like manner as he was seen to go, the promise of God's angels. Now, we go from there. This is all history, from that point backward. Here we go into the future on the chart called the millennium, a thousand years of, of God's name being glorified in this earth. And here is a representation of a house of prayer for all nations. Men at that time, we are told, will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. There will be no more war. The situation, such as we have tonight, will have been completely changed, and God's name will be glorified. And finally, at the end of the thousand years, we come to the time when, as the apostle tells us, the kingdom is delivered up to God. That, briefly, and very sketchily, is God's 7,000-year plan. Now, the thought we have in mind is, again, the fact that we would call attention that in 1963, all that is on this side uh, of that troubled water is history. We have seen 6,000 years of God's plan and his purpose fulfilled. The book of Revelation, the last message of Christ to his church, was for the purpose of showing Christ's watching servants things that would shortly begin to come to pass after Christ's uh, a promise, after he had spoken, after John's day. That they did come to pass is evident in the pages of your history books. The Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the rise of the European nations, many things occurred in history, all of which were fulfillments of the words Jesus spoke through John to show his people things that must shortly come to pass. Now, the scriptures the whole Bible was so written and contrived that God's people throughout the ages would have plenty to observe in the affairs going on around them that would give them comfort and hope and courage to carry on. Because this, throughout the 6,000 years of human history, God's people have always been in the minority. They've often been persecuted. Most of the time they have been misunderstood so that their lot has been one in which they needed help, they needed comfort. And folks, we need help and we need comfort this evening, because what we're seeing come to pass is very portentous 
of still more difficult times to come. But many of the aspects of our day seem to differ from the past. That is, the things we are seeing all are converging toward what we might call the hub of a wheel. Each of them are spokes, and we're getting closer to some central event, all of these things coming together, and it's like a crossword puzzle, each part fitting in to the place it belongs. And the picture is taking very, very remarkable shape. There is an appointed time in the outworking of God's plan. The prophet Habakkuk was instructed to write it, and he asked the Lord regarding the matter. And in the second chapter, the second and third verses, we're told the Lord answered him about his vision. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables, or scrolls, that he that run runneth, that he may read that may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though that though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Now, folks, we believe and we hope that you, if you're able to attend the series, will realize that this vision and the other visions of the prophets are speaking. They're shouting to those that have ears to hear. Each of these things that God has spoken concerning his developing plan, and it is all with a preconceived end, is coming into focus, as though you were, remember your eye examination, how the optician flashed before your eyes certain lenses. Some of them helped, some didn't. But finally something came into focus, and this picture is coming into focus, as it never did before. The Jewish people, their land, events in the Middle East, in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, in the United States, all of them have a relationship one to the other. This world in the last 50 years has shrunken to where it's much smaller than it used to be due to man's inventive genius. Think of the astronaut orbiting the Earth. How many minutes? 81 minutes, I think it was, the last one that went up. Man has entered a new age. He's entered the space age, the air. And with that, the unique thing that makes our whole picture different is that he now possesses something he never had before, the power to destroy himself in a very few hours. Man was never in possession of that before. And he is not morally fit to use the power he has. Within a few hours, men are able today by rocket missile, by nuclear explosion, 
by fallout as the result of nuclear explosion, to risk making the Earth an uninhabitable place for anything alive. It is now estimated that the stockpile of atomic bombs possessed by Russia and the United States, if they were all used, would be able to destroy every living thing three times over. That's the power man has possessed at this, at this particular time. Three times over. Now, we do not say that that's going to happen. We simply say that man has come into that kind of a power and has demonstrated himself unfit to use it properly. Oh, he could use it for uh, many blessings, to heal his sicknesses, to dig his harbors, to move mountains, but he doesn't use it for that purpose. The first use that we know he made of it was to destroy himself. We're very thankful that God has other plans. But there is increasing evidence of a cataclysmic conflict between East and West, between communism and democracy, between Russia and her allies on the one hand, and the United States and her allies on the other. It looms as a distinct possibility. And so the question arises, which we are dealing with this evening, is war with Russia inevitable? As we said, we believe the Bible answers the question. But the answer is so related to other aspects of world conditions with which the scriptures also deal that to do justice to the subject, we must answer some of the other things which will lead us to the proper answer regarding the future of Russia. So we seek first the answer to the question, where are we now in general relationship to God's developing plans as revealed through prophecy? Now, as we said to you, that error up there indicates generally where we are this evening, in 1963. The approximate place in both time and prophecy that is, we are drawing near. You'll notice, if you can see that little red six up there, just the other side of the arrow, that's 6,000, the end of 6,000 years of history. And we're drawing very near to that point. Now, what does the Bible indicate is to occur at that particular time? Well, let's look at a few of the testimonies of Scripture. First, we think of the chapter that was read by our brother just a moment ago. And we'll notice a proclamation beginning, I think it was at the ninth verse. It was a proclamation from the Almighty. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles, prepare war, make up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Now, can anyone here tonight who reads the papers, who knows what's going on, say that this is not an actuality, a thing you read in the headlines of your papers every day, 
There are more nations today than ever were before in history. And there's not a one who has any uh, 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 facility at all that is not preparing for war. They are all sitting in uh, uh, along the East River in New York, all talking peace, but at the same time preparing for war. We have off our shores, 90 miles, an island. It's a bankrupt island. It's one of the weakest governments there are. But the leader of those benighted people can come before the United Nations Assembly and rattle his saber just as any of the others and say he's strong. The weak are certainly saying I'm strong in such an instance. So the proclamation continues. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye nations, or heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. We have that taking place. It's been taking place for quite some time in many ways. From the prophet Jeremiah, we have these words from the 25th chapter, verse 32. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, evil shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised from the coasts of the earth. A noise shall come even to the ends of the earth, for the Lord hath a controversy with the nations. He will plead with all flesh. He will give them, them that are wicked to the sword, saith the Lord. Verse 33, And the slain of the Lord shall be at that day from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. Folks, that, that scripture has never been fulfilled. We turn over to the New Testament. We find in the 11th chapter of the Revelation, again we might remember that it's the last message of our Savior from heaven to his people. And in the 18th verse of the 11th chapter, we have this kind of condition depicted. The nations were angry. And thy, that is, God's wrath, is come. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged. Now let's look at that picture. Was there ever a time when the nations were more angry? That characterizes each of them. Each of them in their selfish seeking for their own, the fulfillment of their own destinies, are irritable and angry as they never were before. God's wrath comes into the picture at such a time as that. He's not pleased with such a situation. He's the creator. He's disowned almost. He's forgotten by his own creation who go about their own ways. But what should accompany such a time as that? The time of the dead, that they should be judged. There we have resurrection. We have judgment that thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldst destroy them that destroy the earth. So that should be comforting to some people that, got, that are looking for this terrible catastrophe of nuclear explosion, 
that will wipe out all life on earth. God is going to destroy those who would do such a thing as that. He's not going to be permi- He's not going to permit this earth to come to such uh, an inglorious uh, end as that. He has purposes with this earth and man upon it. So there will come a time in the outworking of this matter in which he will step into the picture and keep man from doing what he would otherwise do if left to himself. Can anyone who knows anything about what's going on fail to relate such language as that to the present day? Coming events cast their shadows before, and we have been living in those shadows for a good many years now, and the shadows are lengthening. Now, in addition to the witness of those prophets, we have the Master speaking when he was here on earth. And his words are recorded for us in the 21st chapter of Luke. And in the 21st chapter of Luke, he says, speaking of a time future in his day, he says there shall be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations, with perplexity. The sea and the waves roaring. Men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after the things that are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Now this is partly language of symbology and partly literal. The sun, moon, and stars are the ruling powers of the earth, the ecclesiastical powers and the lesser luminaries. The sea and the waves are people. We're going to have a scripture in a few minutes that will further demonstrate that point. The sea and the waves are people. But men's hearts are literally failing them. And there's where your literality comes into this picture. Because these things are being shaken as they never were before. And men are fearful as they never were before, as a result of it. Well, we ask ourselves, have they any reason to fear? Or is this simply uh, a thing in men's minds? Well, to ask that question is simply to answer it. For never before in the world's history has there been a time when more of the world's great men, that is, those that are in a position to know, it's scientists who help to create this uh, monstrous, fearful thing, and who feared while they were doing it as to what the future would hold for mankind when they did it. It's diplomats, it's statesmen, it's engineers, it's heads of government. Men in the best position to know are in greater fear of the immediate future than ever before in history. Because they know far better than you and I what the situation is. If we actually, if the people of Richmond actually knew what the situation was, as Mr. Kennedy, as Mr. Rusk know, why, they wouldn't be able to go home and sleep tonight. So they are kept in a reasonable measure of ignorance. You and I are. Because people 
are known to panic when they know too much. So we know very little of what's going on. But what we do know proves that God's word is coming to pass. Not long ago, President Kennedy was speaking to a group of young people. And I was very much surprised to read a part of his speech in which he told them that this country is at the present time in the greatest peril it's ever known. That's a lot coming from him. It's the truth. He didn't tell them all about what the peril was. He simply acknowledged it was there. Men fear, partly because they realize their own responsibility for what they find themselves in at the present moment. And they also fear because of their inabilities to control the situation. Nearly 19 years ago, the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan. Most of you of over 40 remember that very well. Well, mankind were appalled and shocked at that destruction. 90,000 people, I think, killed like that. First time in the world's history such a thing has happened. That bomb was 100, a rating of 100,000 tons of TNT. Well, today, the Department of Defense of this country estimates that in an initial attack by an enemy on this country, between 50 and 80 million people would perish in an initial attack. It's estimated that if this country were in a position to retaliate from that initial attack, that an additional 200 to 300 million people would perish as a result of such a thing as that. Depending on how long such a war could go on, between 500 and 600 million would perish. That's the estimate. Well, 19 years ago, after that relatively little bomb were dropped on Hiroshima, the Archbishop of York, who was the second-ranking churchman in Britain, said this, Unless controlled by an international organization, the nuclear fission bomb is a handwriting on the wall, foreshadowing fulfillment of Bible prophecies of the end of this age. So Christadelphians aren't the only ones that have these ideas. Well, the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan, is by comparison with what is available today, a toy. That bomb was 100,000 tons rating of TNT. Today, we have the 100 megaton, meaning 100 million ton capacity bomb. The Russians have exploded a 58 megaton bomb, as far as we know. 
Now, this thing is so fearful that the leading atomic-powered nations, realizing the gravity of the danger of the situation, have, as we know, met off and on in Geneva for a long, long time. And they're meeting there right now. And they're getting nowhere. They, they have a thing that is going to destroy them in their own minds, and yet they cannot work out a peaceful solution as to how to keep their world going and not destroy each other. That's almost beyond conception that rational thinkers can't sit down and work out an agreement with each other to keep from mutual destruction from taking place. It's almost beyond our conception that such men cannot do that. In the meantime, in addition to that, the scientists of the great powers are working unceasingly developing germ warfare, nerve gases, death rays, and similar lethal weapons whereby, with the release of these things, horrible diseases and plagues and paralysis can be sown among defenseless populations. This, my friends, is the kind of world we're living in. And anybody that doesn't know it or acknowledge it has simply got their head in the sand. This is surrounds us, and we live with it. Now, many people, you and I, we know it, and other people know it. And this realization has been causing an increasing cry to go up from people who want peace and want security. It's only natural that they don't want to die in such a thing as that. But with each passing decade, peace, or each passing year, Peace gets farther and farther away. The cry is universal, but there is no peace to follow. We have here a clip from the paper the other day, an article, Sleepless Nights at the White House, and part of it reads as follows. It was a result of Mr. Kennedy's recent uh, news conference. Personally, he told newsmen, I am haunted by the feeling that by 1970, unless we are successful, there may be 10 nuclear powers instead of four, and by 1975, 15 or 20. The president's words tumbled out in turbulent conf uh, confession of his inner turmoil, with all, quoting again, with all of the history of war and the human race's history, uh, unfortunately, has been a good deal more of war than peace. With nuclear weapons distributed all through the world and available, and the strongest reluctance of any people to accept defeat, I see the possibility of the President of the United States having to face a world in which 15 or 20 or 25 nations may have these weapons. And that is what the President regards as the greatest possible danger and hazard. He discussed only the hazards of failure, not his hopes for success. They are too fragile. Well, that's what's going on in the White House, and that's what's going on in the world. Well, now another voice has been added to this cry. A very highly placed and respected 
an influential voice has been added to these cries for peace. Two weeks ago, the Pope of Rome, as you know, in a most extraordinary encyclical letter of approximately 20,000 words, unusual in that it was directed for the first time in history, not only to Catholic peoples, but to all peoples of the world, an appeal for peace. Peace on earth, it is entitled. Pointing out where the present trends inevitably lead, we have a comment. The Pope's Easter encyclical sternly warned the world that unless mankind must that mankind must either learn to live together or to perish together. Pope John expressed his concern that the world might accidentally be plunged into an atomic holocaust. And he sketched a blueprint of the way he felt peace could be made permanent. And what did he put his hopes in? The scriptures? The God he's supposed to represent? No. He put them in the United Nations as the basis for peace. Most of all, he spoke of his anxiety that the Cold War might become a hot one. Quote from him, Seized by anxiety for the good of all, we feel it our duty to beseech men, especially those who have the responsibility of public affairs, to spare no labor in order to ensure that the world events follow a reasonable course. Now the scriptures refer directly to such a time and circumstance. In 1 Thessalonians, the 5th chapter and 13th verses, we find the apostle saying this, When they shall say, Peace and safety, and sudden destruction cometh upon them, and they shall not escape. Well, it's very natural for some people, I would myself, under the same circumstances, ask that since this cry for peace is so universal, the futility of conflicts conflict so apparent, and the efforts of those responsible for making war a peace so ostensibly directed for peace. Why are such efforts as these United Nations councils, why are such efforts as the Geneva nuclear peace conferences, uh, why are they so unsuccessful? Surely men can, as they've always done, eventually work out their problems and muddle through somehow. Well, the scriptures again give a very direct answer to such a situation as we see now. Turn to the 57th chapter of Isaiah and look at verses 21 or 20 and 21. And there the Lord speaking through Isaiah testifies. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, 
whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There's the scripture over there on the chart if you want to make a note of it. There's the trouble. See, it's the people casting up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And we have a more general statement by the psalmist, or through the psalmist, concerning the Lord's work among the nations. He says that he bringeth the counsels of the nations to naught. He maketh the devices of the peoples of none effect. And that's the answer to why these peace conferences and the United Nations, in which men are placing so much hope, why they cannot bring peace. It is not intended, brethren and sisters and friends, that they bring peace. There's only one being, one created being, that can bring peace to the earth, and his title, among others, is the Prince of Peace. And he's coming back to do just that. And there will never be peace until he does. To those who know the scriptures and the Bible prophecies, however, it would seem these events, as we have said, we repeat, are synchronizing, all synchronizing to that end, to that predetermined end, in a very amazing way. And that we have definitely reached that period referred to by the Master we read a while ago in Luke, when men's hearts are failing them for fear and for looking after those things that are coming on the earth. Now, to, look, to, to get down more specifically to the answer to our question, is war with Russia inevitable? There are two signs among many. There are two principal signs among the nations in fulfillment of the prophecies which we are referring to that we will now give attention as they are the most apparent, the most palpable, which indicate that the hand of God is at work in human affairs. The first, of course, concerns God's ancient people, the Jew, Israel, the Jewish nation, their people and their land. Now, if you'll turn to the 37th chapter of Ezekiel, we find the word of the Lord speaking through that prophet to this end, in verse 21-22. This is a prophecy in which it is said, I, God, will take the children of Israel from among the nations, whither they be gone, and gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation upon the land in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. Now let's look at that closely. Three vital points there. First, the Jews are re in this prophecy are regathered to their own land. Has that come to pass? Well, while we're sitting here, 70 nations have given up Jews who have returned to the land of Israel to the number of between two million and two and a half million. That is an accomplished fact. Two, you'll notice it says, I will make them one nation in their own land. 
Has Israel been established as a nation? Yes. On May 14, 1948, they became the state of Israel. We're going to bring this map over here in a minute. They ceased to exist as a nation nearly 1,900 years ago and have been a people scattered throughout the world ever since, and only 15 years ago they again became a nation in the land of Israel. You can see what I mean then when I see these things are converging to a focus. They're all happening together at this time, but they're not the only things. Well, we've seen these two things happen. The third remains yet to be fulfilled, but the fact the other two have happened, one day we'll see those people reigned by one king who will be king to them all. That is yet to happen. Now, side by side with the uprise and reestablishment of the nation of Israel, we've witnessed the second of the great signs. The emergence of the nation of Russia as a dominant world power. Now, those of us who are 50 years old and more can remember when Russia was just a sprawling, mainly landlocked nation, principally made up of an ignorant peasantry. In fact, it's said that most of their aristocrats a hundred years ago couldn't read and write. Ground down to the earth by an autocratic czarist regime, burdened with a completely self-seeking aristocracy, guided into further ignorance by a priest-ridden religious organization that thought only of its own well-being. These three upper classes simply lived in indolent comfort up to 50 years ago, uh, grinding down this ignorant peasantry uh, without a thought for their own, for, for their good. Russia was one of the most backward nations of the modern world 50 years ago. Well, came World War I and its aftermath, and Russia was left, as you recall, a defeated, war-ravaged, revolution-torn region in a state of almost complete anarchy. To try to save the situation, the various world powers, the United States included, each sent representative armies into Russia to uh, uh, occupying forces with the purpose of trying to bring some order out of this chaos that had been uh, left throughout Russia by their defeat at the hands of the Germans. Well, certain revolutionary elements came into being at that time and took over. They had been born out, born out of the oppression and, and uh, uh, despotism of the past. They seized power, they gathered an army, and they expelled these uh, uh, nations that had come in to try to bring order out of chaos. They succeeded in rallying their people. They repelled the occupying forces. But Russia lay prostrate and desolate as she never did before. Torn by war and revolution, and her people were dazed and utterly confused by all this thing that the nation had gone through. And they were certainly basically ignorant of the modern world about them. However, the very clever communist elements under Lenin, under Trotsky, and uh, other men of 50 or uh, uh, 40 years ago, they 
seized the government and accomplished very remarkable things. But they did it at a cost of tens of millions of people slaughtered and oppressed. But in spite of all that, Russia arose in a rather spectacular recovery, gradually changing its basic society from an agricultural peasantry class to an industrialized world power. But less than 25 years ago, another wave of armed invasion saw their land again desolated, again the German hordes, their cities bombed and razed to the ground, their industrial complexes, which they had see, uh, succeeded in developing in many of their cities, were ruined completely. Their oil fields were seized and temporarily razed to the ground, and their uh, German enemies got to the very gates of Moscow. In fact, the enemy that invaded Russia, the equivalent can be well understood if an enemy were to attack our eastern shore and get as far as Denver, Colorado, and occupy the United States to that point, it would have been equivalent to what the Russian, uh, the part of Russia that was invaded uh, by the Germans in 1941 and 42. But again, the enemy was rolled back, and again the Russian nation lay prostrate as a result of the ravages of war. Well, as indeed did much of Europe at the end of World War II. Well, what have we today? A very remarkable recovery again. Today, Russia is in the minds of many the dominant power in the world. She has certainly come into fierce competition with the United States as the leading atomic and space power of the world and the leading technical power. Russia and the United States have now developed a new dimension in their ability to extend themselves, have now entered into outer space with their weaponry and their instruments, and are working feverishly, each of them, as we know, to place one of their own kind on the moon and on any of the other, other planets within their pan, planned ability to reach. Think of that. This nation has never suffered the uh, throes of, ag of, of oppression, of, uh, of, of confusion and destruction that the Russian nation has, has suffered within the last, 25, uh, last 50 years. And yet Russia is competing with this nation in almost every field of endeavor. There's something remarkable about that, brethren and sisters and friends. The flag of the hammer and sickle is said to be on the moon right today as a result of Russia having succeeded in remarkably aiming one of her rockets and landing uh, those uh, symbols of her uh, national sovereignty uh, on the moon. And the leader of Russia, Mr. Khrushchev, has said, successful flights of Earth satellites and rockets cause doubt in our minds as to the existence of a God. And he has added to the statement by saying, we create our own heaven and fill it with our own sun, moon, and stars. Well, we have a biblical record, 
some 2,500 years ago of a monarch who also said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt myself above the throne of God. We have his words repeated in the 14th chapter of Isaiah, of, of Isaiah yes. And we also have God's uh, further testimony about him. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee, and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness, and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? And here is first te further testimony as to the Lord's purpose in the matter. 24th verse. The Lord of hosts hath sworn, saying, Surely, as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. So the Lord has a purpose in this matter. Mr. Khrushchev and others have purposes. These purposes conflict with God's. Is there a question as to the outcome? We hardly think so. So, there's only one explanation. Friends, as to such remarkable resurgence of a nation as Russia, a, a resurgence and a re-resurgence in such a brief time, Russia has a place in the plans and purposes of the Creator in the days in which we live. And that purpose is nearing a climax. The scriptures indicate that the remarkable growth that Russia has achieved will continue. And that increasingly confident in her own strength, the organized force of the Russian nation will move. I hope all of you can see this from the back, the best we can do under the circumstances. Now, this movement is dictated by the force of circumstances. Today, Russia has ambitions, as we know, to dominate the world. But those things are achieved a step at a the time. There are several things a military leader looks for. Strategic position is one of the dominating things in which his mind, to which his mind turns, which uh, enables him to make better progress. Another thing is to cut off his enemies from vital supplies. He oftentimes, when he's able to do that, can subdue them without the firing of a shot. Well, those two circumstances exist together in one section of the world, in the little state of Israel, and we'll explain that as we go along. Russia today would like to dominate Europe, but there has risen in Europe in the last five years a counterforce which is remarkable in what it has achieved. We know that after World War II, the United, the United States stayed in Europe and organized what is known as the North 
Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. And she agreed to support the nations of Europe militarily and economically for a period. She's still doing it. And her weight is being felt there. However, the European nations themselves have achieved a great measure of strength by their own efforts. And today, we have them unified, economically principally as of the moment, but it will in time be felt militarily and politically in a group called, as we hear it very commonly called, the European Common Market, or more properly, the European Economic Community. And they're very strong, and they're getting stronger. So Russia is faced with the idea of weakening herself by attacking such a group or going in another direction. Well, there is a direction in which she can go and seize vital material in a region which today supplies Europe with this vital material. Russia has long wanted, and in fact, as far back as Peter the Great, we're told, it was amb his ambition to have a warm water port which Russia does not have. And that warm water port lies in only one direction from Russia, the south. And here, of course, off this map is the great Russian uh, uh, empire to the north. Here's Turkey, here's Israel, here's Egypt, and this is the marvelous Middle East over here. Now, the prophecies of the scriptures, and we're going to further identify these powers as we go along, we find that Ezekiel, that prophet again, he was a remarkable one, in the 38th chapter, speaks of something happening in connection with some powers that were known by certain names in his day, which today are changed. If you'll turn to the 38th chapter of Ezekiel, we'll find another prophecy concerning this situation of which we speak. We look at the 38th verse, and in verse 2, 38th chapter, and in verse 2, we find these instructions. Ezekiel is called the son of man, and he is told to set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Now, there is a prediction of a power, or the leader of a power, known as Gog of the land of Magog. And he will be defeated by divine intervention, as we go on and read in this chapter, which we'll do. Now, in thinking, however, of these titles, these were the names in which certain powers were known 2,500 years ago by Ezekiel. We look at the historian to help us identify them, and the Jewish historian Josephus, who lived, as we remember, shortly after Christ's ministry, he identified this this Magog title here, the chief prince of Meshach, uh, Gog of the land of Magog, he identified Magog as, or with the ancient Scythians who lived in this region of what is now today southern Russia. It's off this map, that's the reason I point up here. But here we have the titles up here. 
uh, those nations split up into various tribal units. And Herodotus, the Greek father of history, long ago made the same identification. So Josephus was on safe ground in doing that. And they lived in in, uh, this region of southern Russia and spread north and west mainly. Uh, Clear on over to the river Don and from there westward to the Danube in Europe. Meshach, the word Meshach there in the second, in the second, third verse, second verse, is the ancient Hebrew form of the word Muscovy from which the word Moscow is derived. The name Tubal there, Meshach and Tubal, evolved into the name, the modern name of Tobolsky, which happens to be the capital of Russian Siberia. You can go to a library and check up on any of this that you care to. Now, we find some other nations associated with these powers in verses 5 and 6. Let's look at them. Persia. There's Persia on the map over here called Iran. Persia. Uh, Ethiopia. Libya. They're, of course, down in Africa. All of them with shield and helmet. Gomar and all his bands. The house of Togarmer of the north quarters and all his bands and many people with thee. Now, Gomer is the Hebrew word for the Gauls, who once occupied this region in Asia Minor, and who left it and emigrated westward into Europe. Today they occupy present-day France. While Togarmer is associated with the same area, they were kin to the, the Gomerites, and they located in the same Asiatic uh, or Asia Minor region. So, coming down to our own time, having made historical identification or connection with these ancient titles, and we say you can confirm this at any library, uh, we have a confederation of Eurasian people, some in Europe, some in Asia uh, or Russia, as the case may be, and some as far down as Persia and Africa. They are mainly, the leader comes mainly from the north of Palestine or the state of modern Israel. Here we are down here. The leader comes from this region. Now, we might refer to that word Rosh. The Revised Standard Version of the Scripture, more correctly, translates this word chief. The Hebrew translated chief is also translated ros, R-O-S-H. And the historian Edward Gibbon, among others, who lived about 200 years ago, wrote the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, you remember, he's quite a qualified historian. He identified the ros people with modern Russia. 
And that verse reads in the Revised Version uh, like this. Gog of the land of Magog, prince of Ross, Meshach, and Tubal. So we have then Gog, a prince of Rosh, Meshach, or Russia, Moscow, and Tobolsky, or Siberia. They come, as we're told, from the north parts. In the latter days, where do they come to? Let's look at the 14th, 15th, and 16th verses of this chapter. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto Gog, Thus saith the Lord God, In that day when my people of Israel dwelleth safely, shalt thou not know it? And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. And somebody might say, Huh, that's no modern army. No, it isn't. Ezekiel saw this as a prophet would see it 2,500 years ago. And it's the only way he knew to describe an invading army. He didn't know anything about modern airplanes, tanks, and other things. But that's what he saw. But it's the only way he could describe it, was in his own language. And thou shalt come, uh, and thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be when? In the latter days. And I will bring thee against my land, that the heathen, or nations, may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O God, before their eyes. Now, we are not standing here and saying, nor do we have the intention of saying, that Nikita Khrushchev is the probable gog, gog of this prophecy, however much it seems to fit his character and intentions, because, as you'll recall, he has said he will bury us. But we do believe that in the not-too-distant future, the group of Kremlin leaders will produce a military figure specifically answering to this prophetic description. He will assemble the armed might of the varied peoples of this vast region and enact the invasion of this chapter. Let's particularly note the Lord's pronouncements again against him from verse 3. He says, I, God, am against thee. And in verse 4, let's note what he says. I will turn thee back and put hooks in thy jaws. We might comment on this turning back. Russia has several times, one specifically, uh, principally, the Crimean War of 18 and 77, approximately, I think, or the 60s, was fought by England and France and Italy and others against Russia to keep her from going south. And she's made other efforts in that direction. She's long had uh, an eye on this region and today more than ever before for a reason which we'll come to. I will turn thee back, but I will put hooks in thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth. There will come a time when Russia will take the thought, and it will be the time. 
All thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields and all of them handling swords. Of course, that's not a modern description, but it was the description of an army in Ezekiel's day. And so he uses the only language he knew. I, God, will do this, the scripture tells us. I will draw Russia and her armies into the Middle East after the manner of fishermen with hooks in the jaws of his catch. You know, from your knowledge of history, that world leaders have always imagined they were the arbiters of their own destiny. Each of them have thought that, that what they were doing was their own idea for their own, the achievement of their own ambitions. They achieved war and peace according to their, their destiny as they saw it. Well, folks, they must learn, and will eventually learn, the truth of what Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And he still does tonight, and he will do it. God uses, and we've seen it in our day, the mad ambitions of a man like Hitler to drive the Jews back to Palestine when it was time for them to go. He uses the ambitions of the Russian atheistic leaders who deny his very existence to fulfill his plans and his prophecies, which include the eventual gathering of all nations to this region down here for judgment. God has baited the hook and with which he draws Russia and her allies to this region, and he's baited it with the most desirable of all modern needs. For among the treasures of this region, which up to 60 years ago meant nothing to the, modern, to the world, there was an ocean of oil under this region down here. And it's the product that the nations of Europe are utterly dependent upon to run their industrial and war machine today. It is said that within six days, the wheels of industry of Europe would have to close down had they not access to the oil of this region. So in one week, any nation that was dominant in this region that was an enemy of Europe would stop the European uh, military and productive machinery. Can you see then, Russia being stopped in westward expansion, how easy it is for her to conceive the idea, as she's already done long ago, that if she can dominate this region, she holds potential domination of the world. For this region is not only possessive of the oil, but the other item of military necessity, the strategic or geographical dominance. And Israel is the bridgehead of three continents, Asia, uh, Africa, Europe, Asia. The most, it's the center of the world, and God arranged it that way 6,000 years ago. With the very things that we see tonight are happening around us, God's at work. This little holy land is his land, and these things are destined to happen there, just as the prophet Ezekiel says they will. It was prophetically foretold 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago. But to continue further with this thought of the coming crisis and of these godless nations that are coming down into this land, you and I both know 
that Russia is dominated, is dedicated to world conquest and domination. Her communist doctrines and her political ideology is more than a political issue. It's a religious creed. When a person believes it, they're the most dedicated zealot that you ever talked to, if you ever knew one. And thus, the coming crisis, friends, in the Middle East is not a normal conflict between nations as you and I have read of in the history books. It, in its final phases, is a conflict between the Russian Colossus and the returned Christ. The prophet Zechariah tells us that Russia's drive south will draw all nations to Jerusalem to battle. We have his testimony in his 14th chapter, the second verse, which, which reads, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And, what, and look at the third verse. Then shall the Lord go, go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. I want to go back. I've skipped something here that I think is very pertinent to this discussion. Some of you might say, well, what about us? Remember about six months ago, how many people, maybe your friends, maybe even you, became very much interested in bomb shelters? And you did it because of Russia's interest and activities in Cuba, 90 miles off our shores. Well, those things, as in Cuba, Russia's activities in West Berlin, Russia's activities in uh, almost any region of the world, her strained relations with Red China, they're all very interesting, and they add greatly to the international tensions and fears. But folks, we suggest you keep your attention on what she does in the Middle East. We suggest that the Western European nations, supported by the United States and the NATO alliance, are too strong a front on Russia's western borders, and their attention will lie more and more to the Middle East and to the vital oil offered in that region. And the stage is set tonight. Nothing more needs to be arranged for the unwitting act to assume the parts that the scriptures 2,500 years ago said they were going to take. Israel is a land today of unwalled villages, just as the scripture in this 38th chapter of Isaiah said they would be. Look at verse 11 in, in Ezekiel 38. Thou shalt say, concerning Gog again, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest that dwell confidently, the word here is safety, look at your margin, confidently, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Why? To take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, 
and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. Those Jews are there tonight out of 70 nations of the world. That is an actuality. They, the cities are being rebuilt. They've accomplished modern miracles in that desert. The desert is progressively blossoming as a rose. And the Jew today, who for nearly 1900 years has been a persecuted and scattered people all over the world, are becoming farmers and builders, working as the Jews did under Nehemiah uh, in their, the days of their return from Babylonian captivity, with a trowel and a hammer and a tool for tilling the soil in one hand and a weapon for defense ready in the other. And they're dwelling confidently. You talk to any Jew who's been to Palestine within the last few years, and he will get a glow of pride on his face as you'll never see him get under any circumstances when he tells of what he's seen in that land and about the miracles. And he calls the miracles that he, that, that he will tell you his people have accomplished in that region. They do dwell confidently because of the remarkable success they think they have alone achieved up to this time. But you and I know that it's because God has been with them. And for that reason alone, they have achieved that, that success. And they will continue to survive and to flourish because it is God's plan they do so. Now, back to our point. Russia is dedicated to world conquest. And this invasion of the land of Israel, in this invasion of the land of Israel, the initial conquests or successes that Russia will achieve will enable her to defeat all human opponents who will combine against her. For in the language of the scripture, we're led to believe that Britain or rather we should say first, America and Britain combined together will naturally, as, as they would at this moment, oppose any Russian aggression in that area because they are protecting the vital mineral wealth that they cannot afford to lose. They will be defeated in that region. But at that critical juncture, let's see what happens. Look at the 18th and 19th verses. It shall come to pass at the same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. Look at the 20th and 20, 21st and 22nd verses. I will call for a sword against him, the Gogan invader, uh, uh, throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother, and I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him an overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus will I magnify myself 
and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. The returned Christ, friends, will be the instrument of God's intervention. And with the power of the um, Almighty, he and his faithful, resurrected and glorified and immortalized saints will appear on the scene and drive us under those invading hosts. The very elements, as is depicted here, will be used against this invader. Heaven's artillery will rain down. Lightning, hail of tremendous force, will beat down the enemy. An unprecedented earthquake apparently will shake the ground. And such fear and panic will spread among these invading peoples that they turn their weapons on each other. God's, God's overthrow will be complete and final. But there's this point to consider, that in their initial successes, they will have humbled the Western nations as they have never been humbled before. But Christ's triumph over this Russian power will bring to naught the greatest massing of human power ever assembled. It is the Lord's purpose to stain the pride of all nations, we are told, and to bring them down to the earth. But the Jewish people in that time will be miraculously, miraculously saved from certain destruction by the very one whom their fathers rejected and whom they crucified. They will be humbled beyond belief, beyond expression. And the prophet Zechariah says that they will look upon him whom they have mourned, whom they have crucified or wounded, and they'll mourn for him as one mourning in the house of his friends. But let's look at the 39th chapter of Ezekiel, the next chapter, verses 25 through 28, for further information on this point. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, God, now will I bring again the captivity, or restore, we should say, Jacob, and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel, and we will be jealous for my holy name. After that they have borne their shame, and all their trespasses whereby they have trespassed against me, when they dwell safely in the midst of their land, and none make them afraid, made them afraid. When I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of their enemies' land and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them unto their own land and have left none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. So, we have the scriptural answer to our question, is war with Russia inevitable? And we have attempted to depict the answer how, and when, and where. We've also got have God's answer through the prophet as to the sequel. For the, the, Lord, the prophet Isaiah 
tells us that in the finality of the matter, the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day, there shall be one Lord and his name. Now, in our the two nights following this, this chart will again be made use of. There are other aspects of this matter which are in many ways more remarkable, more miraculous than that of which the scriptures have testified on this matter this evening. The matter all connects with the outworking of the salvation of mankind, the deliverance of them from the fear and the devastation of the devastation and of destruction which seems very imminent in the earth. We hope that we will have the pleasure of talking to you on these subjects on these other occasions.